The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. While war creates the need for a state, it obliterates the capacity to deliver one. We're seeing that in Ukraine right now, that if you want to develop a state, you need peace, not war. War may create the need for a state, but peace is what allows you to build one. And I think that that might be a lesson worth emphasizing, especially these days. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the democracy paradox. Longtime listeners will already know I take a very expansive view of democracy. One of my many interests involves understanding its origins and evolution. So while some might wonder what medieval history has to do with democracy, I find it fascinating to discover how many of what we call democratic institutions have medieval origins. In this episode, Anna Jamala Busset will explain how the Catholic Church shaped many of our modern political institutions. For those who don't already know her, Anna Jamala Busset is the Michelle and Kevin Douglas Professor of International Studies at Stanford University. She is also the director of the Europe Center and a senior fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute. Her latest book is Sacred Foundations, The Religious and Medieval Roots of the European State. Our conversation explores how the church influenced the development of the law, taxation, and political representation. Most of us take for granted how those institutions developed, but Anna explains how they evolved over long periods of time through conflict, competition, and experimentation. Still, this is not just an account of history. I find this perspective helps us better understand politics and governance today. Now, if you like this podcast, please give it a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Strong ratings and reviews really do help independent podcasts like this one stand out. Like always, you'll find a full transcript at democracyparadox.com. But for now, here is my conversation with Anna Jamala Busse. Anna Jamala Busse, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thank you for having me. Well, Anna, I found your book really impressive. It's interesting because most of the conversations that I have on this podcast obviously talk about modern and contemporary politics. So I found your book remarkable because when I talk about modern politics, we typically take the presence of the state for granted. It's just really difficult to imagine governance or politics without the state. So your new book, Sacred Foundations, really tries to explain the formation of what we call the state. It really kind of looks at 
as the book's subtitle says, the religious and medieval roots of the European state. So why don't we kind of start before the state starts to get formed? Can you explain how governance worked in the medieval era before the creation of what we call the modern state? So, you know, the modern state doesn't really come online until much, much later. What we have in the medieval era are forms of lordship and kingship. And, you know, I think this sort of classic stereotype is of a sort of tight feudal pyramid with the king and his vassals and the peasants. But in fact, these relationships were much looser. They had a lot to do with mutual obligations. Governance was, in in its ideal, consensual. It was very localized and cellular. And kings governed largely by sort of cajoling barons and cajoling large landowners to go along with their plans. It was much less about coercion, which is what the modern state can exercise. At this time, you know, it was much more about legitimation, consent, convincing others to go along with your plans, promising them rewards if they do so. And that's really how kings initially governed. And what basically happens, and this sort of really begins in the 11th century, there is a conflict between the church and what then becomes known as the Holy Roman Empire over sort of, you know, what are the boundaries of authority? Who gets to, for example, name bishops, which doesn't sound like a very big deal now, but precisely because of the cellular nature of medieval society, bishops were really critical local administrators. They're wealthy landowners, there were sort of you know, royal administrators, and there was the spiritual emissaries of the Pope. And it's with that initial conflict, and they're working out where the boundaries lie. And the sort of the subsequent, you know, spread of this conflict throughout Europe, that really what we can think of as the conceptualization of the state, of sovereignty, of you know, rule as separate from simply cajoling, really begins as something that's institutionalized. And of course, it takes an incredibly long time for the modern states to arise. These rulers provide justice, they provide, you know, they do tax a little bit, they have some institutions that resolve conflict. But it's a long, long way off from sort of, you know, these formalized cages of reason that Weber and others described by the 19th century. So obviously, the book touches on not just the creation of the state, but actually the dynamics between the way that the state's created through religious institutions and through secular institutions. And in the book, you write that kings and popes were counterweights to each other in ways that rulers in other settings, whether the Islamic Caliphate or the Ottoman, Byzantine, and Chinese empires never faced. So how did the church gain this independence from secular rulers in Europe? So again, this is a story largely of the 11th century. Basically, until then, you know, in the Carolingian Empire especially, you have sort of a long tradition of Nobles and kings basically appointing their bishops, building monasteries, building churches, and really sort of controlling the church and its clergy. And there's a power vacuum that occurs when basically in the 11th century, one of the Holy Roman emperors dies, the new one isn't yet named, and the church kind of uses this to decide that the only way you can select a pope isn't by imperial appointment, but by election. And so from that moment on, the cardinals claim that they will elect the pope. And with that, then comes a struggle to basically free the church from the secular control and to have the church control its own appointments, its own clergy, et cetera, et cetera. And as the popes sort of gain in power in doing this, and as sort of, you know, the Holy Roman Empire overextends itself into northern Italy, what winds up basically happening is a struggle between these two powers that fragments Europe. And the critical aspect that's different in governance, and this has been noted by many historians, 
is the fact that territorial authority in Europe, as a result, remains highly fragmented. You know, the Roman Empire falls, and with the sort of brief blip of the Carolingian Empire in the 8th and 9th centuries, you don't have a resurrected empire that ever governs in Europe itself. This is very different from the centralized governance that we see in China. It's very different from the fusion of religious and secular authority that we see in the Caliphate or on the Byzantine Empire. What you have instead is a church on one side that's very much keen to protect its autonomy, and kings on the other that very much don't want the church to intervene in their politics. And the result of this is basically the church deploying all kinds of weapons to prevent the rise of a strong secular power again that could bring it under its thumb. And so the church relies on uh, wars by proxy, on alliances, on depositions, and perhaps most interestingly, on secular crusades to keep any kind of ruler who might threaten its autonomy from being able to do so. And the result of this is really the fragmentation of Europe, especially in what is the Holy Roman Empire, or you know, what is basically mostly currently Germany, Burgundy, and those areas. That's where authority is most fragmented, as well as in Northern Italy. And the result of that is basically the sort of constant counterweight between the popes on the one hand and the kings on the other, as they struggle to sort of you know, delimit the boundaries of their power. It shocks me a little bit that we start the story at 1100, where the popes <laughs> begin to take their power, because I was never taught this. But I think I always just innately assumed that with the fall of the Roman Empire, that the Pope all of a sudden became this powerful figure that was independent of any states. But what you're saying is, is that that's not necessarily the case. In fact, different states actually had significant influence over who the Pope would become, had significant influence over the direction of the church, even after the fall of the Roman Empire. That's right. So, you know, basically after the fall of the Roman Empire in the West, the empire continues in Byzantium, but so the center of the Roman Empire shifts far, far east. And that leaves basically all these local religious leaders, on the one hand, as sometimes the sole authorities that can provide justice and order. And on the other hand, the Pope as just one bishop among many. And this is a time where, you know, the church is in a very weak position. It doesn't have the kind of protective state power that it had before. And it falls easy prey to these local lords. And in many cases, it's just local lords who basically then decide that they're going to name the bishops. They're going to get the prophets from you know, the cathedrals and the monasteries. And they're the ones who are going to rule the church. And that really sort of develops in the Holy Roman Empire. Again, at the time, it's not called the Holy Roman Empire. But especially under Charlemagne and others, you have this sort of start of churches that are basically entirely controlled by local lords and by the emperors. So... Essentially, the Middle Ages isn't this period of stasis. You're describing the Middle Ages as this period of significant evolution, both of the church and the state, over many hundreds of years. That's right. I mean, I think, you know, until very recently, the history of the state, as it's told in at least Western social science, really starts with the early modern period. And basically, a lot of scholars claimed that what you have initially is in the early modern period are, are these very expensive wars, this sort of constant jostling for power among these fragmented states, and that the expenses of warfare lead to the need for taxation, which then basically magically produces state institutions as the incidental byproducts, as Charles Stille called them, of this quest for warfare and domination. But what I argue in this book is that you know, this critical moment of state formation actually occurs much earlier you know, several hundred of years before, where you first see this conflict between the church and the state. And as a result, what we see are two other differences from this early modern account. One is that the relevant conflict is really between the papacy 
and between secular rulers as they work out what the boundaries of their authority are. And then secondly, we see a lot of emulation. It's not just about conflict. It's about the fact that, for example, you know, the Carolingian minuscule, a specific way of writing so documents, first originates in the church, then gets transmitted to the Carolingians, and then travels all across Europe. The fact that you know, church courts offered relatively cheap and easy justice and became sort of you know, the favored place where not just clerical disputes, but contract disputes would be sort of you know, administered. And the rulers noticed this. The rulers noticed that the papacy basically has at its disposal wealthy bishops, an enormous amount of human capital in the form of literate clerks and monks. And it wants to harness this as its own as well. And so in this kind of conflict, in this sort of ratcheting up, what we see is you know, the development of law schools and the use of law as a weapon, the rise of universities, the rise of parliaments who borrow a lot of their rules for governance from church councils, new ways of taxing the population and of administering justice to them. And it's all basically because of this interplay between the church on the one hand and the needs of secular rulers. And both parties, as a result, develop a much stronger administration. Um, they basically slowly start to develop what we consider familiar administrative techniques of taxation, of the court systems, of parliaments, and of institutions like the uh, accounting offices or the letter writing offices of both kings and popes. So you mentioned Charles Tilly, and he's got that famous quote where he says, war made the state and the state made war. And he's obviously talking about the development of very modern style bureaucracies that are capable of bringing in vast sums of money, able to create very large standing armies. But he's also describing this as if it's coming from a point of origin, almost like that's where the beginning is. And what you're saying is, is that this whole process is very iterative. And not only that, but the way that you're describing it with taxation and legislatures and the rule of law, you're saying that it's even much more expansive when we think about the creation of the state. That's right. I think, you know, for a lot of political economists, the state really constitutes, on the one hand, taxation. On the other hand, the executive constraint and the consent to taxation that exists in parliaments. What I would argue is that the state is considerably more expansive. And once we look at the medieval era, what really comes into focus is the emphasis on the rule of law and on administering of justice. You know, there's a fantastic book by Deborah Buyakanis, who argues that the first parliaments weren't there to pass legislation. That happens much, much later. They were there basically as a conflict dispute resolution mechanism. They were there to deliver justice. And nobles attended because this was the one forum where their disputes could be resolved. And I think that sort of emphasis on the law and on peaceful conflict resolution and on establishing rules that persist over time that are clear and predictable, all of that occurs in the medieval period. And Frank Fukuyama notes that you know, this happens then in Europe. But it certainly doesn't happen elsewhere. You don't have the same kind of predictable, transparent set of rules that begin to apply to everyone, of course, you know, more in theory than in practice, and that create the sort of, you know, the roots of the rule of law in Europe. So you've described the relationship between kings and popes, and I'm sure other forms of nobility as being very conflictual, like as if they're in a state of conflict, or maybe competition might even be the better phrase. How did they treat each other and why did they see each other in this way? So I don't mean to suggest that this was always competitive. I mean, we can think of them almost as siblings in the sense that there is competition over resources and over authority, but there's also a great deal of sort of you know, mutual deference and respect. 
And so there are several incidents where, you know, Rome gets sacked and the Pope basically gets killed on the one hand. On the other hand, where, you know, the Pope excommunicates one Holy Roman Emperor after another. But there's also a considerable amount of deference because no king would ever claim the kind of spiritual authority that the church can claim. No king would ever say that they can deliver salvation or they can absolve sins or that they can promise a life eternal. And the church can do that. And for that reason, you know, even though the kings resent the interference of the church, they recognize that the church has this moral claim on politics and that the church has this unique capacity, this unique authority to deliver salvation. For their part, popes also recognize that they don't have secular armies at their disposal. The few times that popes lead armies, you know, with the exception of Julius II, which is you know, in the 16th century, for medieval popes, it ends in disaster. They're basically totally incompetent. And so they rely on the secular protection of kings and of local rulers in order to survive as an institution. So on the one hand, the relationship, I think, is definitely competitive at times, but it's also very much an interdependence where the kings rely on the spiritual authority of the church on the one hand, and the church itself relies on the physical protection and the, you know, the physical space in which to survive that the kings and secular rulers can provide. But at the same time, the popes needed to be able to still demonstrate their independence because if it's based completely on pure strength, pure force of will, the kings are going to win every time. So what were the tools that the popes had to be able to fight back or at least demonstrate their independence, if you will, and their own sphere of influence? You know, there's sort of multiple weapons that the popes wielded. There were spiritual weapons. They could excommunicate rulers. The all-time winner here was Henry IV, who I believe was excommunicated six times or four times by you know, several different popes. And so they could excommunicate rulers and remove entire communities through an interdict from so a relationship with the church and the ability to receive the sacraments. So that was one weapon. But as I show, it's actually really interesting. That's not the most powerful weapon that the popes wielded. It only slightly affects the durability of rulers and only in the sort of early years of their kingship. So even though that seems like a very powerful weapon, that actually wasn't the most useful one that the popes had. What they do instead is, first, they form a lot of alliances and wars by proxy with secular rulers. They basically sick secular rulers on each other. And they're constantly shifting coalitions as basically the popes recognize what the biggest threat is and attempt to form coalitions against that biggest threat. They also rely on political crusades. We tend to think of crusades as these expeditions to the Far East, you know, recover Jerusalem or deliver Constantinople. But in fact, the modal, the most popular form of crusade was a political crusade launched by the Pope against his political enemies. That's the most common kind of crusade that we observe. I compiled a record of basically the 170 crusade episodes that we see in Europe originating from the Pope. And, you know, the most of them basically are targeting other rulers in an attempt to basically undermine their authority. And finally, the law is a major weapon. So as part of this investiture conflict, this 11th century conflict, both sides are scrabbling for legal arguments with which to make their case. And in the process, what we see is the, you know, the so-called rediscovery of Roman law in basically the late to middle 11th century. The first school of law in Bologna arises in 1088 in order to teach Roman law. And not to be left behind, roughly 70 years later, canon law also gets systematized by Gratian and the codex of all these laws. And what happens basically is that both sides are using legal arguments against each other in an attempt to sort of you know, show who's right. 
the sort of ancillary result of this is that you see the development of law in Europe that basically melds canon and civil law on the one hand, and a competition between basically the emperors and the popes to charter universities. So they don't necessarily found universities. Those are mostly sort of you know, organic bottom-up creations, but they charter them and offer their protection. And so you have this enormous sort of increase in human capital and legal knowledge and the use of law as a tool of diplomacy and international conflict that all arises from the 11th century and this conflict between the popes and kings. And here, by the way, my all-time favorite story is how basically Innocent III inadvertently creates the basis for modern sovereignty. In 1202, he issues this papal bull that basically says each king is an emperor in his own kingdom. And this is directed against the Holy Roman Emperor to basically sort of you know, free all the princes and the regional nobles from any kind of you know, duty or any kind of deference to the emperor. And that works. But what kings very quickly realize is that if each one of them is an emperor in their own kingdom, that means they don't have to pay attention to the pope either. And so these bases for sovereignty and for freeing yourself from papal interference inadvertently basically occur in the very early 13th century. And that thread persists throughout. Why was law so powerful? Because I can understand why the papacy would want to be able to establish rules of the game that they could win legal battles with secular rulers. I don't completely understand why secular rulers would want to buy in to legal ideas when they could just utilize brute force to be able to exercise their will. So why was law appealing to both sides? I think it was appealing because it was cheaper and it was more legitimate. So we tend to think of kings as having all these coercive powers and having armies at their command and whatnot. But in fact, for medieval rulers, waging war was incredibly exhausting. It meant having to call up your nobles and convincing them that they should contribute to the effort. It meant sort of you know, training a whole bunch of basically quasi-peasants and nobles in the most rudimentary arts of war. It was expensive. It was tedious. It inevitably depleted their personal treasury because in most cases, these wars were fought from the king's own purse. And so law offered a much sort of cheaper way, right? You're basically throwing arguments around you and you're putting forth your representatives to make these arguments. Law offered a much cheaper and safer way of resolving conflict. More than that, I think there's still a huge deference to Rome itself. I mean, there's a reason why the Holy Roman Empire becomes known as a successor to the Roman Empire, at least in name only. Although, you know, as Voltaire points out, it was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. But the reason why that's done is because there's this enormous sort of, you know, legitimation and enormous sort of aura attached to the idea of Roman ideas and recovering you know, the Roman ideals. And because a lot of this law is said to be Roman, and the recovery of Justinian's codex and others, there's an enormous legitimacy that this is how the noblest of rulers would have resolved their conflict. And so we should do the same. And as a result, basically, you know, as early as the 11th century, the late 11th century, even in the investiture conflict, you have sort of, you know, legal documents flying back and forth. And initially, the popes have a huge advantage. They simply know the law better. They have more human capital. They preserved the knowledge. And kings very quickly realized that it would behoove them to have the same thing. And so kings then start to found law schools and to you know, pay professors in order to basically have an advantage in this way of you know, resolving conflict and advocating for their stances. So why did the church focus on the fragmentation of the Holy Roman Empire? Because I can understand why they wanted fragmentation within Italy. It's where they're located. I mean, they're in Italy itself. I can understand that Spain is already fragmented among a couple different kingdoms. 
why did they focus primarily on the Holy Roman Empire instead of a country like France that's also to its north? So there are two reasons. One is that sort of you know the whole idea of the Holy Roman Emperor naming the Pope and the Pope then naming the Emperor really arises in the Carolingian Empire. So this is basically Charlemagne's legacy. And that means that you know that's kind of the locus of a lot of these ideas that somehow the secular rulers ought to control the church. The second reason is that the Holy Roman Empire, at its peak, basically extends over the Alps into northern Italy, and it then starts to form a pincer movement and comes up from Sicily. And so the papal states are basically squished in between first the Holy Roman Empire and then Normans coming up from the south, and from the Holy Roman Empire coming over the Alps and basically occupying a large swathe of northern Italy. And so if the popes can fragment the Holy Roman Empire, and they basically wage sort of you know, all kinds of attempts to do this, that's the only way they can remain autonomous. So even though the Holy Roman Empire is you know, far off, you know, its main locus is in Germany, it reaches all the way to northern Italy. And the problem there, of course, is that you know, basically, eventually they push out the Holy Roman Emperors, they push out you know, those forces um, at considerable expense. And what happens is that there's a power vacuum because the Pope can't really broadcast power into Northern Italy. There, you know, it's still a relatively weak papacy and he doesn't have the military or the administrative means to do so. And so that sort of sets the stage for the rise of the Italian city-states. You know, places like Florence and Pisa and Venice all benefit from this power vacuum that results when the Holy Roman Empire leaves Northern Italy and the papacy can't really you know, broadcast or project power into that area. And so the whole story of you know, Florence can be found in these initial sort of struggles between the papacy and the Holy Roman Empire. So let's kind of go into the core argument within the book that the formation of the state really derives from institutions that begin in the papacy, that begin within the church. Why don't we start with one that we've already kind of talked a little bit about, the development of law and actual courts within Europe. How did those arise? Why is it that you're linking those to what you describe as sacred foundations or sacred institutions? Well, I think there's several reasons to think that. The first one is that civil law and canon law basically fuse together to form the corpus of European civil law. You can see influences from canon law everywhere. Second reason is that in many cases, the church sort of gives the first examples of how to structure law. So the entire idea of the court of appeals, you know, an eventual kind of you know, Supreme Court, that kind of hierarchy, however loose, really starts with the church and the kind of appeals courts that the church produces, basically a, a system of courts that at its apex has the various courts of the Roman Curia. And thirdly, I think another reason why the church is so important here is precisely because of this use of the law as such a powerful weapon. So, you know, this gives an idea that contracts, for example, or corporations, institutions that we think of that are so familiar, these legal fictions, they all come from the church. And they're incredibly useful for subsequent economic and political development. If you have a corporate entity like a city or a university that can sign contracts in perpetuity, that isn't just dependent on its members, but survives them, that is an incredibly useful legal fiction. And that fiction largely comes from the church. And it's, for example, what differentiates, and some people have argued accounts for, the divergence between the Muslim lands and sort of, you know, Western Christian lands roughly around you know, the year 1100 or so. Because in the Muslim system, you don't have perpetual corporations. The contract expires, basically, as soon as any one of the members of the corporation dies and has to be renegotiated. 
And that makes property rights much harder. That makes investment much harder. And that makes a long time horizon that's necessary for investment and for sort of stable polities also more difficult. In the book, you mention how people oftentimes had almost a choice between whether they wanted to use secular courts or canon law courts. And oftentimes they would take their disputes to canon law courts, not because they thought it was religious or sacred in nature, but simply because it was more effective. And they were able to dispense justice in a way that people thought was fair and much more efficiently. Why was that? It's partly because they're simply, you know, these were better developed legal systems. I mean, they had developed earlier. They were staffed not with sort of the local sheriff, but with an actual legal expert, a bishop. And so they were able to arrive at decisions faster. They're also kinder. You know, the church basically makes it very clear that it cannot shed blood. And so you're not going to get executed if you're found guilty of you know, a contract violation in the church itself. In fact, you know, what the church eventually winds up doing is handing over people for torture to the civil courts, but it itself will never sort of sully its hands. A lot of times it's simply because it's a more efficient way to get justice. It's cheaper, it's more efficient, you get a decision faster, and that a decision is every bit as credible. If a bishop issues the judgment and says, no, in fact, you, know, you violated the contract law, everyone will respect that. So rather than wait for sort of, you know, the local courts, you know, the local lord's court to meet, which they meet very infrequently, to arrive at a decision, to sort of, you know, promulgate that decision, it's just cheaper and faster, which is why, you know, at various points in history, something like 40% of cases that ought to have gone to civil courts wind up in canon courts simply because it's easier. So... Were there secular courts before the canon law courts at all? Like, how did they deal with disputes and justice before the development of canon law? So two things to note here. I mean, you know, Roman law gets rediscovered in the 1070s or so. So there is a body of secular law that you know, can be at least accessed by the 11th century. But I think it's really important to note that for local lords and for kings, one of their critical roles was to dispense justice to keep order and to resolve conflicts, to keep justice, basically. So the central role that both legitimated a local ruler and made him a desirable ruler to have. And so that's a critical role, but it was never really formalized, right? There wasn't a formal procedure, which meant that a lot of law in Europe was highly local. It was very traditional. It didn't rely on kind of a body of transparent regulations that we can refer to today, but instead it was basically tradition. And so on one hand, you definitely have the dispensing of justice and the keeping of order prior to the rise of Roman and canon law, but it's developed in a very sort of local and dispersed way. And people have to wait until the Lord and his leashes meet, basically, and can deliver that justice. So it's much less formal. So it sounds like as economy started to grow again, and you started to have wider networks, both social, economic, political it sounds like it's more difficult then to be able to use these very intensely local traditions that people might not be familiar with. Like if you're going to trade with people between two different towns and set a contract, I mean, it'd be difficult to know which traditions you're actually using. Whereas it sounds like if you're using canon law, you have one consistent law that everybody agrees with and that they can understand and that they think is more likely to be consistently applied as well. Am I understanding that right? So I wouldn't say that canon law gets used. I mean, it's, it's really sort of the combination of civil and canon law that basically gets used willy-nilly and fuses to form European law. But you're absolutely right. There are huge economies of scale here. And so there's been some work done by economists that basically shows that, you know, 
those cities that develop universities then have a sort of a higher body of human capital and legal expertise, and that promotes trade and local city growth. Because basically, you know, you can invest more if you know that there's a contract that underlies that investment. So it's definitely the case that basically everybody begins to see the value of law. That doesn't mean that the law is applied equally, that it's applied evenly, that in fact, that it's even fair. There might still be different punishments, for example, for nobles versus for peasants. But there's still you know, this idea that the law has become this really useful framework within which you can make durable contracts and agreements. And a lot of that stems from the church, because that's how the church has always operated. The church has always sort of, you know, formulated these contracts. The very idea of being named a clergy person or being named a bishop rests on the fact that you are vested with certain constrained rights and responsibilities. And those are laid out, sort of a contract, basically, that lays out exactly what you'll be doing as bishop or as, you know, abbot. So, Anna, I think most people have at least heard of canon law. So I think that this part of the explanation isn't too much of a shock, but the next two, I think, are much more foreign. How is it that taxation was an institution that more or less developed out of church practices? So I don't mean to argue that you know, the entire tax system is at the behest of the church, but it definitely influenced it largely through the Crusades. And you know, Lisa Blades and Christopher Pike make a similar argument where they basically argue that what the Crusades do is offer an opportunity for these new taxation processes to develop. What I argue in the book is that they can literally be directly traced to, for example, the Saladin tithe that takes place in England at the end of the 12th century. And what you see there are sort of, you know, not just groups of people, you know, including two monks, a bishop, and a secular official that travel, but they also audit. There's a process not just for collecting the monies, but for auditing. Did you actually give enough? You know, their neighbors are asked, did you give enough? The money is then not just audited, but there's a whole process for collecting the money, saving it, and then transmitting it. You know, this is the start of all kinds of receipts and all kinds of sort of, you know, written documentation of what was collected, when, by whom, and, you know, against how much was expected from that person. And so that kind of systematization of taxation, the church sort of, you know, shows the way. It's not adopted everywhere. In fact, you know, kings struggle to develop taxation mechanisms for a very long time because they don't have the power that the church does of having, you know, a priest or a bishop in every single town. They simply don't have that kind of administrative apparatus. But they take heed and they sort of realize that, you know, we need auditing mechanisms too. We need a better collection system. We need to make sure that, you know, that money actually travels up the chain to the capital rather than basically being handed out willy-nilly to various local officials along the way. And all of that comes from the church, and it's the template that it presents with the Saladin tithe and other crusade taxes. It gets adopted imperfectly at best, but you can see strains of it basically being maintained throughout European history. It sounds like this wasn't just the development of taxation, but really the earliest forms of the administrative state. That's right. That's right. The idea of you know, sending emissaries. And the irony here is that the sort of the most centralized and capable state of all is also the one that at least sort of exhibits the Catholic Church's influence, and that's England. You know, the Pope blesses William the Conqueror's conquest in 1066, and William continues an already sort of the centralizing tendencies of the kings and develops common law, the parliament, and other institutions that are almost uniquely English. But there's very much sort of, you know, this idea that this all stems from these sort of earlier interactions and from sort of seeing, you know, what the church is doing and where the church can influence and where it can't. So the final piece of the puzzle involves the development of representation. And that includes parliaments, but it's really 
a bigger picture idea. Can you kind of explain how representation changed through the papacy and the church itself? So the church basically develops three ideas that are critical to the functioning of modern parliaments and of parliaments full stop. And to be clear, initially, parliaments do not make legislation. They serve basically, again, first as courts of justice, and then to express consent to whatever it is that the king proposes. And initially, they're very narrow. It's basically a bunch of nobles, but they take on a more representative role. As the king makes more and more demands, they have to basically include more and more of society. And this idea of representation already starts to rely on what the church is doing. So the church would have councils, these huge international councils that sometimes had as many as a thousand clergy participating. And those clergy represented their home parishes and their home communities. And they became known as proctors, proctorial or binding representation, which meant that a priest would travel. They would agree to whatever it is that the Pope wanted them to do at the council on behalf of his community. And that community was then bound by that decision. That move is critical to the functioning of parliaments. If you're going to have representation, it has to be binding. You can't have representation when you know your representative goes to Congress, comes back and says, we agree to this tax law, and then has to renegotiate that all over again with the people who brought him or her into power. And so that idea of binding representation, that entire communities can be bound by the decision of a representative, comes from the church. Another idea is the one that underpins sort of suffrage to begin with, which is the idea that that which touches all ought to be decided by all. Again, it comes straight from church councils. And the idea, this kind of justifies representation in the first place. If this is going to affect me, I need to have a voice in how this policy is being created. And that idea comes directly from a church councils and from the idea that you can't just be a bunch of narrow cardinals making these decisions but a much broader sort of new group of people ought to be included in making decisions because those decisions touch them. And finally, there's the idea of majority and supermajority voting. So until basically the 13th century or so, or 12th, 13th century, most votes didn't really take place on majority rules. It was much more important to achieve consensus. And so when these early sort of new councils of nobles would meet with the king, it was really important to achieve full consensus in order for that decision to be legitimate. And what the church introduces is the idea of the bigger and better part. Basically, sort of, you know, introduces the idea of the majority of the better kinds of people who attend the council suffices for consensus. And that, of course, makes parliaments and representative assemblies much more efficient. And it introduces the rule that we live by today, that you need a majority, which is you know, 50% plus one, or a supermajority that can be two-thirds or you know, three-fourths or whatever, in order to make decisions. But you don't need consensus. You don't need unanimity. And that's a huge institutional ovation. So these are some of the most basic ways in which church councils serve as a template for representative assemblies and, in fact, sort of enable them and make them possible. So we're talking about these as individual creations, but what I found remarkable in the book was that a lot of these kind of synergized with one another. Yes, that's right. Yeah, the rule of law specifically had a lot to do with the creation of some of these ideas about representation that these deep legal ideas that they'd been researching helped them come up with these new ideas about representation. And all of the work that they were doing within the law made it necessary to be able to create more administrative apparatus. I mean, again, I love how a lot of these ideas build upon one another so that it starts to create the semblance of something that's an organic whole rather than just pieces. 
And, you know, and that also means that you know, what you don't have in this era is sort of the classic you know, division of labor that we would like to see in a quote-unquote rational bureaucracy. So a lot of times, somebody who's a noble in the parliament will also serve as a judge. A lot of cases are brought before parliaments because the parliaments still continue to decide cases. They then turn to sort of you know, legal experts to find out exactly how they should decide these. And of course, all of this generates reams of you know, paper or parchment that has to be accounted for and put away and archived in some way. And so you're absolutely right. All of these things are working together to basically both create the demand and the supply of more administration, more states, more records on which states rely and so on. None of these things work in isolation. And it might be one of the reasons why you know, historians note that in the 12th century, you have something known as the 12th century revolution, which is kind of burgeoning of you know, universities, towns, trade, new ideas in art. And, you know, it might very well be that this basically follows on the heels of this kind of, you know, development of the state, these kinds of institutions and these kinds of solutions that together basically also help to foster greater human capital, greater trade, communication between cities, the attractiveness of cities as someplace to live and work, which I mean, I don't need to suggest that I'm explaining, you know, the entire medieval history or the state itself. But I think you're absolutely right. These threads definitely interweave and you can't sort of look at them separately. So, Anna, we've been talking about medieval history, but I'm more familiar with your work dealing with contemporary politics and post-communist politics. So I know that you're very familiar both with politics today as well as how we got to politics today with the work that you're doing right now on the state formation in the medieval era. So let me ask you about how this work translates to contemporary politics how do you see our institutions still reflecting some of these different sacred origins right now? Well, it's not that difficult to find these, right? I mean, I, we already mentioned representative assemblies. And to this day, we have binding representation and, you know, the idea of majority rule. But there are also other sort of importations. The whole idea of a corporation, of a universitas, comes from basically sort of, you know, church-influenced teachings um, and sort of legal expertise. Where the idea of sort of you know, a fictive personality, whether it's a parliament, a university, a town, or the church itself, proved very convenient. And it's basically what the modern capitalist economy relies on. The fact that a corporation is very distinct from the individuals who form it, and the individuals are not necessarily personally liable in the way that the corporation as a legal fiction is. So we see these elements. And I think, you know, to this day, there is sort of, you know, a I wouldn't call it a struggle, but there's, you know, that autonomy, that sort of independence of church and state remains. And I think it's absolutely critical for the development of sort of, you know, modern polities and modern economies, where we see sort of, you know, attempts for the church to play a more political role. Inevitably, it hurts the church and inevitably it makes the politics much more conflictual. Um, and that's certainly the case in places like, you know, the United States or Poland or others where the church sort of, you know, want to play a more political role. And so it's a lesson that, you know, I think the church still hasn't learned a thousand years later about sort of, you know, the importance for its own sake of preserving these boundaries between the two. But these are just, you know, some of the ways in which we sort of have this permeation. You know, the modern university is basically a creation of the church in many ways. The idea that you have university accreditations, that there's a body that accredits universities. So if you get a degree from one university, you can teach in others. That's a church invention. And so the genealogy of a lot of what we think of as intensely secular institutions actually rests on very religious foundations. So obviously we can see the development of a separation between church and state going all the way back to the medieval era. But I feel like we can see other parallels too that establish kind of divisions between 
the state and even just society as a whole. I mean, I think the entire concept of civil society doesn't exist in the same way that we think of it right now if there hadn't been this sense of a second parallel world which the church embodied during the Middle Ages that allowed people to express themselves in a different way or think of things in a very different way rather than saying everything was public. And it feels like we're still living in that world today to the extent that we have the state and we have a society that has a division, but it's not always clear where that division lies. So, and I think you know the very idea of private lives as being equally worthy as the public political life, which would be totally foreign to classical Greeks, for example, but is very much embraced by the church, that what happens you know, in the family is very important, that your personal conscience and your personal thoughts are your own, and no state, no actor can sort of you know, reach into those. Those are very much sort of ideas that the church had promulgated on both sort of you know, religious and political grounds for a very long time now. So... As we're trying to translate the lessons that we've learned in terms of state formation during the medieval era, how has this study changed how you think about contemporary politics, whether it be internationally, whether it be within specific countries? I think it's not necessarily changed, but it's made me definitely think two separate things. One is that you know there's a lot of, sort of defense of war that, you know, as you pointed out in Tilly's famous dictum, you know, war makes states and states make war. But while war creates the need for a state, it obliterates the capacity to deliver one. You know, we're seeing that in Ukraine right now, that if you want to develop a state, you need peace, not war. War may create the need for a state, but peace is what allows you to build one. And I think that, that might be a lesson worth emphasizing, especially these days. I think the second aspect is you know, just the importance of separating religious from secular authorities. And those lines are often blurred. It is very much the case that both sets of authorities care about sort of the moral implications of what they're doing, for example. But unless the two can be separated, you have both a religion that's highly dependent on the state, as is the case in the Orthodox churches, or you know, it could be said about the Muslim lands, and you have a state that doesn't recognize the limits of its own action, that doesn't recognize, as you point out with civil society, that there are limits to the appropriate exercise of its authority. And so I think this separation of church and state, and this is not a new point, is critical both to European development and I think a constraint on an overweening and predatory state as well. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Anna. The book, once again, is called Sacred Foundations, The Religious and Medieval Roots of the European State. It's an absolutely fascinating read. It's one where it feels like every page you're learning something new because this is definitely a subject that I was not as familiar with. So thank you so much for writing it. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for a great conversation, Justin. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends, because word of mouth goes a very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening.
The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.